This is KCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. Uh, th- today we're going to be uh, remembering uh, folks we know who have passed on. Uh, in particular, we'll be remembering the life and work of uh, Alan Berube, uh, who was a people's historian, a community historian, who um, studied and worked uh, and wrote about uh, gays in the military, most notably. Uh, and with us on the phone are two uh, guests who know, uh, who knew uh, Alan, um, Gerard Koskovich and Amber Hollibaugh. Welcome. Welcome to the show. Uh, uh, with us are uh, Amber Hollibaugh and Gerard Koskovich, uh, who are uh, who knew uh, Alan Berube uh, while he was working on his uh, pioneering work on gays in the military and also uh, before that. Um, Amber is with the uh, National Gay Task Force and Gerard is uh, with the Association of uh, uh, Seniors? The, I, I'm an editor at the American Society on Aging, and I'm also a, a founding member of the GLBT Historical Society, which is more important for today. Right, and that was where uh, Alan Berube, who was a people's historian or a community historian, was active. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, how that's did what, you... Actually, that's what Alan helped to start. It was originally the Gay and Lesbian History Project right. that in a long period of time, um, morphed into what Gerard is now a founding member of. But originally, it was a community-based history project that many of us were involved in in San Francisco. And you were also in San Francisco at the time, Amber. I was. I was. I now work for the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force. Um, But back then, in the 70s, I worked at Modern Times Bookstore, which was the progressive bookstore in San Francisco, and met Alan in 1974, I think. How how did Um, you meet? He came into the bookstore. Ah. He was an avid reader. He hung out at bookstores throughout San Francisco. He was constantly looking for gay history in, in an unformed and unrecognized way, and... I was an open lesbian at Modern Times, and he and I quickly began to talk about gay history because we were, well, it wasn't, you know, there was nothing recognized yet as gay history. It was something that ended up being, in that early period, a group of us telling each other stories of things we'd found that we knew were gay or lesbian um, and trying to construct what that might have meant in much earlier periods of time. And Alan was, you know, was engaged in that, thinking about that and involved in that. And so he and I met early in the 70s when he was a gay craftsman. He was a, a, a weaver and made, had a loom in his apartment and <laughs> was doing <laughs> crafts. He did lots of odd jobs to make ends meet, and uh, he had he dropped did. out dropped out of the University of Chicago um, to j- uh, become uh, active in the Vietnam War um, protests against it. Against it, I mean, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> for sure, like many of us. And uh, he, so it's really amazing that here's a college dropout actually 
who ended up doing the premier work on gays in the military in the U.S.? Well, you know, Gerard, jump in here any minute you want to. Um, I think that it's important that in, in the 70s there was an enormous outburst of progressive movements, of the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement, the women's movement, and the beginning of a gay movement. And, and there were no such things as women's studies or black studies or African-American studies or queer theory. That didn't exist. And history became the foundation for the kind of the, the foundational piece for understanding LGBT identity. The work that Alan did, that the History Project did, it was true that we were all, you know, some people were academics and mostly people weren't, but there was no, you didn't think you had an academic future if you were doing gay history. You did it because you loved it. And there was, no, in fact, it was a dangerous thing to do. And, and if people were academics, like John D'Amelio, they were very worried when they submitted their PhDs because they were on gay history and they were afraid that they wouldn't, it wouldn't, they wouldn't be given the credit for the work that they had done because it was such an unorthodox idea that there was such a thing as gay history at Pre that time. Precisely. So, let me jump in. I met Alan when I was a graduate student at Stanford in 1982. He came to give one of his slide talks, and I was just starting to take an interest in my field of art history at the time in looking at gay and lesbian imagery, and it was not a very welcome thing to do. The earliest history PhD that was accepted in the U.S. in a, in a history department was Salvatore Licata's in 1978, and then John D'Amelio's in, in 82-83. So it was just the very beginning of the moment where some very brave graduate students uh, were starting to try and submit PhDs in in LGBT history. It was not something that was accepted in the academy. It was not taken seriously. It was regarded as inconsequential uh, or foolish, and certainly it was not regarded as a good career move trying to get hired on the job market uh, using a PhD with a gay or lesbian theme at the time was pretty much uh, career That's suicide. Right, there, therefore, the most important work being done on LGBT history was being done by community-based historians who did it out of love, passion, and commitment, uh, not out of seeking an academic career. And it meant that those community-based historians, including the wonderful group of people who founded the San Francisco Gay and Lesbian History Project, which was a sort of private study group started in 1978, they made the foundational effort in the field. They published the foundational works. They created the ways of thinking about researching and understanding that history that ultimately provided a basis for the emergence of LGBT history and queer theory in the academy. Uh, and Alan was definitely one of the, the great pioneers and the great figures of that generation that opened up an entire field of serious study. So, and if you think yeah. about it, I mean, it wasn't so remarkable then. I, in a funny way, coming out under fire was as it was a similar effort as Jonathan Ned Katz's book, Gay American History. Also, a college dropout, not an academic, not someone that was, you know, in the field or in 
based at a university. He was an independent, community-based scholar who was a public intellectual like Alan, and they're very, they were very close friends. There was a circle of people doing remarkable work, and we all had a relationship to each other, and we supported each other's work. It wasn't the academy. It was outside the academy, and we were the ones that then were trying to develop the ideas that because there was nobody else who cared enough about it, thought it was was um, foundational, thought that it was was uh, important intellectual work. And so Alan was a brilliant, um, you know, articulator of a new vision for history. Would you say his scholarship was impeccable? I, I would go beyond Absolutely. saying it was impeccable. His his work was of a fully professional level from the point of view of historical research interpretation. The quality of his writing was remarkable because it was both highly sophisticated theoretically and extremely accessible. One didn't need to have studied the arcana of professional historical jargon to understand it. But equally important was that Allen's work was part of uh, an emerging effort at that time to really build bridges between serious historical work and the needs of communities, and not just the LGBT community. It was the development of the so-called public history movement, where, right. where historical thought is tied to the crucial questions of today and helps shine light on the issues that, that we currently need to understand. And Amber is quite right in saying that there was no one in the academy who was an audience for or took this work seriously at the time. Conversely, the LGBT community was incredibly hungry for uh, a historical understanding, for placing itself within a greater flow of time, with seeing where we came from and where we might be able to go based on that understanding. Alan was one of the historians who reached out to the community for his sources, asked people to share their memories, their documents, their leads, and brought that back to the community initially in the form of illustrated lectures, slide talks, which were extremely well attended and which he traveled around the country with. Uh, he worked on a slide talk on the history of passing women, right. women who dressed as men in the 19th century. He worked on another slide talk on the history of gay and lesbian bars in San Francisco, again, a topic that serious academics would not even begin to think about at that time. Uh, who cares what the history of bars is? Uh, yeah. That's when I met Alan. He brought his talk on the bars to Stanford. Uh, and then he worked on a talk that he called Marching to a Different Drummer, which was the origins, ultimately, of his book coming out under fire and then the film coming out under fire. So Alan was one of the historians who developed a close relationship with the community who saw it as his primary audience, not academics, and who was very eager to bring what he had learned back to the community that had helped him learn it in the first place. Many of the topics that he investigated and wrote about clearly were inspired by the discussions on the street that he was having, by the things that people were asking about and wondering about that they felt that history might enlighten our current concerns. Well, you know, it was a moment in time that I think, Gerard, you're really articulating when, when it was the beginning of the gay and lesbian movement, gay history played a huge role because while now there's a real question of, you know, the limits of identity politics, 
Back then, we were trying to figure out what that identity meant. We were trying to understand ourselves as having a history, as being a group, as being a people that had complex and different intersections where we met, but where there was something besides emerging as a gay man or a lesbian or a bisexual or a transgender person from nothing. It appeared, because we were never documented in history in ways that you, most of us could find, that we emerged independent and, and by ourselves. Gay history, in its first impulse, its radical impulse, was trying to ground and understand a complex intersection of, of what it means to be not heterosexual. And Alan was at the front of that, of asking those questions. And part of the hunger that Gerard is right to note was that we would, we would go to Alan's slideshows and see ourselves, maybe in another historical moment. But we would see our own communities in different kinds of um, places and settings and stories. And it was remarkable because you come out as a, a lesbian or a gay man, certainly in the 70s, you think, Nobody came before you. So part of the power, I think, of the San Francisco Gay and Lesbian History Project and other community-based projects happening around the country in different ways was that it was like finding yourself when you found that history. Absolutely. And I think one of the impulses that Amber is talking about is precisely that at that early moment, lesbian and gay people who had begun to develop a consciousness and a movement saw that the absence of a history wasn't accidental, that the devaluing of our past wasn't something that the Academy had done merely fortuitously. It was part of a system whereby people were marginalized, were fragmentized, were separated from their past and from one another, uh, that that past was actually something that was actively erased. It was a willful unknowing on the part of the academy as part of a system that functioned to keep LGBT people marginalized and isolated, and that one way of attacking that system of marginalization and isolation was to create a history for ourselves. Do you feel today that with uh, you know all these queer studies or gay studies programs in many um, institutions, uh, established programs maybe, um, that something is lost um, with this uh, from the past where there was this more intimate connection with the community? I don't think there's any question that the original relationship between women's studies or feminism and women's liberation is a completely divorced history. And often queer theory um, and academic gay studies or, you know, gay and lesbian studies, whatever they call it, depending on the department you're in, rarely has an intimate and vibrant relationship to the community outside of the, the university setting. Sometimes that's different depending on who, who's teaching in those departments and their relationship to activism and social change. But in general, it, the worlds have become very, very separate and people who were instrumental in beginning the, the work of those movements 
rarely have, if they're not academics themselves, rarely now have any institutional relationship to the ongoing um, studies that are happening or departments that have been created. I think that's absolutely correct that there are gains that have been made in the establishment within universities of LGBT studies and queer theory at the same time there have been losses precisely because people become increasingly concerned with building an academic career and that's at right. least some if not most of the things that one must focus on to build an academic career are about impressing other academics and increasingly finding oneself within a kind of Byzantine jargon uh, that doesn't make sense to people who are not trained in the one true church of the academia, uh, that there's much less effort to build a connection with the community. But that isn't entirely gone. There are notable examples of historians who continue to do uh, work that bridges the academy and the broader community. I'm thinking, for example, of George, the great work of George Chauncey, uh, the author of Gay New York, who's now a history professor at Yale, and who also led a group of historians, for example, in writing uh, the significant uh, friend of the court brief in the Lawrence case in which the Supreme Court overturned uh, sodomy laws throughout the United States. And it was that brief that was cited and quoted in the majority opinion as providing the key thing that allowed the court to revisit uh, the earlier Hardwick case and overturn that precedent by saying the previous court didn't know the history and therefore had ruled wrongly. Uh, so there are indeed some academic historians who are still, uh, who have maintained that vibrant and vital connection to the community, but it's certainly something that is not as, as uh, widespread as it was in that great, I would think of it as the heroic founding generation of community-based historians. <laughs> Do you think this well, so... coming yeah. out under fire was fundamentally important in the don't ask, don't tell debates. For sure. Um, it was a critical document um, used to argue that we had always been in the military, that it wasn't something new, that, you know, officially letting us in or not letting us in changed nothing except whether we could be open, but that we had always been um, in that institution. And Alan, actually someone said to me that, I can't remember, because Alan didn't tell me this directly, but someone said that Alan was not allowed to testify um, at the hearings because he wasn't an academic. Oh boy. And while his work was cited um, there, he was only the folks that were had academic credentials um, could be expert witnesses in testifying there, um, and he was not invited to speak. The other great thing about Alan's book... that was book, an interesting comment on creating the history and then not being allowed in the door. The other, the other important thing about Alan's book, besides the fortuitous timing, the book coming out under fire came out in 1990, and uh, the paperback came out just about at the moment that the debate about Don't Ask, Don't Tell broke out in 1992 at the beginning of the Clinton administration. But the other important part of the book was that it demonstrated one of the ways in which history, the serious study of history can break up people's presumptions that they exist in a kind of uh, timeless, ahistorical monolith. People thought that gay people had always been banned from the military, 
And That's Alan's right. research demonstrated that, in fact, that policy had a history and that the notion of banning gay and lesbian people as a kind of identity, homosexuals as a species, from the military actually only started at the beginning of World War II in response to some very specific historical circumstances, and that previous, previously there was simply the military code, uniform military code of justice had an anti-sodomy clause that applied to uh, everyone of whatever gender uh, and wasn't about people's psychological uh, being or identity. So Alan managed to destabilize the presumption that the existing policy had always been the policy, and that opens the door to saying, well, if it hasn't always been the policy, it doesn't always have to be the policy. You know, I, I, as we're talking, Gerard and Dan, it, one of the things that I think is really clear about Alan's work is that in at time, time after time, Alan used history in important ways to make substantial arguments about things that people in the academy and often in the broader world considered unnecessary. His history of gay bars was a history of how people found each other in community. The history of coming out under fire was another way of, of people finding each other, even though they weren't allowed to be evident in a direct way. He did a, a, a history of bathhouses, gay bathhouses, because in the epidemic, in the AIDS epidemic, the public health you know, the impulse from public health officials was to close bathhouses rather than leave them open to educate people about safer sex. In response to that, Alan had already had lost a lover. He knew how important it was in sexual cultures to use the venues that people um, are a part of to, to talk about safety and all the issues of desire and sexuality, and so he did a history of gay bathhouses so that it wasn't simply an argument about how you felt about sex. It was a historical argument about the importance of sexual venues in our community. Absolutely, and it was also a moment where he over. again responded with a historian's eye to That's a right. current, public, current public controversy. The article was published in 1984 in Coming Up, which was a uh, twice-a-month uh, gay community events newspaper in San Francisco and then later was published in a historical anthology. But that was precisely the moment in San Francisco when the public health department was proposing closing gay bathhouses and when there was a very aggressive uh, dis public discourse uh, demonizing gay men's sexuality and portraying bathhouses as uh, sites of social disorder and debauchery uh, and danger. And Alan said, well, what actually is happening in these places? Why have they existed? How long have they existed? And what functions do they serve socially, culturally, and yes, sexually? Alan never made any effort to, uh, to erase the fact that they were sites of physical pleasure, but he said they were that and so much more and therefore deserve to be thought about and perhaps used through public policy in a different way than the dominant discourse might have proposed. Well, sure. Uh, we're talking with uh, Gerard Koskovich, who's a community-based historian and uh, book collector and book distributor, antique book distributor, and also with Amber Holliber, 
who has been an activist for many, many years um, and now is in New York. Uh, Gerard is in San Francisco. Um, uh, with remembering the life of Alan Berube, uh, a community-based historian who wrote uh, about gays in the military and was working at, at the time of his death on a book about a uh, gay uh, union, um, a union. Um, how did a maritime union? A maritime union, union sorry. Um, maybe uh, we can explore this further about this. Uh, his attitudes on sexuality. He was definitely pro-sex. He didn't want the state uh, getting uh, uh, cracking hmm. down. Well, he, you know, he was part of <clears throat> again a movement of people who who came from the seventies, who had a very different kind of understanding of what's now called the social construction of sexuality, of and of the importance of sexuality not as an isolated act of desire, but as a very complex um, and powerful component of human life and human vision. And he was unprepared to give that up as the right wing took more and more control over the dialogue of sexuality in this country. I mean, now we're at a point where, you know, they're funding abstinence-only education educations, but that was not where he started. He believed fundamentally that desire and um, and the connection between human beings around desire was fundamentally important. He believed in gay male sexuality. He was proud of that. He was a leather man. He spoke out about sexuality. He was a part of the sex panic um, group that did an enormous amount of work in response to to the conservatism within the gay community around sexuality, not just the state. And he never, ever ceded the ground of both history and the erotic and said that they, that they were intertwined when you were talking about human existence. One of Alan's important articles that, that is an example of this and the ways in which he turned those personal politics of understanding desire, sexuality, and compassion into important critical thinking that could help serve our community was published in 1988. It was called Caught in the Storm, AIDS and the Meaning Meaning of Natural Disaster. Uh, So 1988 is a moment when we're still at the height of the AIDS epidemic in San Francisco, and uh, again, uh, the right-wing discourses uh, were portraying uh, the AIDS epidemic as something that gay men had brought upon themselves and that they deserved, that it was a moral punishment, uh, that as a public policy response, people should be locked up. It was a period of time in California when there were ballot initiatives suggesting uh, that gay men be quarantined, Uh, and Allen published a really brilliant article putting forward uh, the proposal that one should think about AIDS the way one thinks about earthquakes or hurricanes, that these are events delivered upon humans by nature that we didn't cause and that we have no moral responsibility for, but that we can respond to in a variety of ways that are either cause further harm to people or, in fact, uh, cause uh, the emergence of greater solidarity 
and that can either erase people's sexual pleasure and desire and connections with one another or can sustain and strengthen them. Uh, and so Alan put this forward as a, a counter-argument against the claims that AIDS was God's punishment or what gay men deserve for having been too sexual and so on. It was a very influential article, uh, not only here in San Francisco, but throughout the, uh, the AIDS activist movement at the time. Yeah, he wrote for many publications uh, um, in, in this, his whole career. And uh, did he ever get paid for anything he wrote uh, apart from his book? Occasionally, but that was he it was certainly not something that he could count on in order to support himself, so that he ended up working two and three jobs working i mean he had a very you know he was a working class gay man who was not a professional academic, so he always had to scramble to make sure that he could make ends meet part of what then was so remarkable after coming out under fire um, after the book was published was his getting the MacArthur Genius Award, um, which gave him for the first time in his life five years of, of finance, um, of support, of financial support that allowed him to, to work without having to scramble to figure out whether or not he could make ends meet. It was really a significant recognition of his work and his brilliance, and it also gave him something that he had never had in his life because he came from a working-class background. He had never had resource to bring to his passion and his commitments. For sure. Yeah, and that is amazing for somebody who didn't uh, didn't finish uh, university education to get an, a MacArthur Award, which, um, you know, people were thinking, well, only uh, scientists get it, and that's not true. That is not true. A lot of community-based right. uh, artists, uh, activists have gotten it. Absolutely. Here in San Francisco, Al, uh, Amber mentioned that Alan was a leather man, and I remember uh, chatting with him at the opening of an exhibit we did at, the, at the, what was then called the Gay and Lesbian Historical Society, uh, a show on leather SM and kink art called Queer and Kinky Danger. And uh, I was standing <laughs> in between Alan Barabi and the great poet Tom Gunn, and in the preceding three years, each of them had received a MacArthur Genius Grant, and they were both gay leather men from San Francisco. <laughs> uh, so it was, it was a, a genius convergence at uh, sure. an opening of an art exhibit on uh, kink and S&M at a gay community institution. Uh, it was really quite a wonderful moment. I think I never saw uh, Alan without a leather jacket. <laughs> I mean, he was always wearing one every well, time I saw it. Well, if you had seen him in 1974 at his loom, you would oh. have seen a very different kind of guy. I mean, he came out <laughs> in the leather community, but in when we when I first met him, at least, uh-huh. he was a hippie. <laughs> oh, right, 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 for sure. <laughs> Which is actually not unusual. Uh, the Martin Meeker, one of our... Our local uh, queer historians who's on the board of the GLBT Historical Society did, uh, did interesting research that showed that the, 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 the gay hippie movement and the emergence of gay leather scene uh, in the 1960s were, were deeply intertwined and that many of the, of the uh, founding members of, of the gay leather community in San Francisco in the, in the late 1960s, early 1970s 
actually got their start in the hippie movement. So Alan was was um, once again uh, a pioneer of of a movement that that was emerging at the time. So be, below that leather was a, a softy. <laughs> uh huh. Maybe. <laughs> I mean, it, it's just an interesting. You know, when you are parts of communities that emerge, so that you see how they combine, it always then. Um, is interesting when people present them as though they have no connection, that hippies have no connection to right. leather, that right. feminism has no connection to leather. You know, if you look at, you know, the, some of the most critical work that was ever done in the women's movement, it was done by Gail Rubin, who is an open leather lesbian. Um, so these are the kind of things that I think that, that underground movement, which was a profound and really important movement tied together but is often not evident to people now looking back at it, and they don't know what those connections are and how close those often were. Yeah, and uh, Gail actually hired uh, Alan to work on on her office to um, arrange she the materials did. so she could uh, get more work done. Yes, and so that was at a time when her, the two of them work very closely together. He, Gail has an extraordinary archive of, of documents and, and information. She's really a, a, a fierce collector, um, and it was very difficult to, to keep it organized, to know even what she had. And Alan came in and worked in worked for her, but worked as a partner and a friend to help organize that extraordinary um, wealth of information that she had stuck in boxes. It, it, was, it definitely turned her information around and gave her um, a, a real... Gave, and she, of course, gave people access to that information. And I think, Gerard, didn't you tell me that the, all the documents from coming out under fire are at the um, JLBT history... At the Historical Society? That's absolutely right. In fact, Alan, uh, Alan was a founding member. The Historical Society was a project that was proposed by one of the members of the Gay and Lesbian History Project uh, and was formally established as a nonprofit in 1985. It's a museum archives and research center here in San Francisco, so we're coming up on our 25th anniversary in a couple of years. And uh, Alan actually had an office space for his World War II project, the period of time when he was working very seriously towards uh, completing his book. And uh, he sublet space from what was then called the Gay and Lesbian Historical Society and had a little office there. When he finished the book and film, coming out under fire, he donated all of his research materials, the 70 or so oral histories that he had done for the book, all of the tapes, uh, all of the uh, documents that he had gathered from uh, using the Freedom of Information Act, the initial box of correspondence from a number of gay men in World War II that a neighbor had given him, which kind of kicked off the project. It was a box of, of dumpster-dived correspondence from uh-huh. gay men in World War II. And Alan ultimately donated the entire contents of that collection. He was a great, great lover of archives, I remember talking with him a couple of times when he had just gotten back from uh, the National Archives branch in Maryland and had finally managed to see a lot of the materials he had been hoping to see uh, from the records of the U.S. military. And he was just glowing with excitement at having spent 
a few weeks rooting through boxes of stinky old paper that nobody had looked at in 50 years, uh, that's the mark of a real historian. (laughs) I have a friend in France who Uh says, you can't be a historian if you don't love the smell of old paper. And Alan obviously (laughs) loved the smell of old paper uh, and therefore was a founding member of the GLBD Historical Society, one of our great supporters over time, and donated his very important research materials from the World War II book, which, incidentally, uh, helped put together our current exhibit at the Historical Society, which is running through the next several months. It's called Outranks, and it's about the history of LGBT people in the U.S. military from World War II to the Iraq War, and the World War II section consists almost entirely of material from Allen's collection. Wow. So if you're San Francisco, do check that out. The uh, was he uh, was he ever the target or the subject of uh, an FBI file? I have no idea. I can't imagine that he wasn't, <laughs> but I don't know that for fact. Uh, how about you, Gerard? Gerard? Yes, I I don't know that either. And it, it's it is an interesting question. Alan certainly used the Freedom of Information Act numerous times to to pry documents out of various federal agencies, but I don't know if he ever applied for his own file. Actually, you know, the, if you yeah. think about his history as right. an anti-war activist, for sure. and you know he was involved in progressive politics for all of his life, um, and saw himself as a progressive, as a leftist, as you know, he part of what was so important, I think, about his work was not simply that it was community-based, but it was class and race-based. Some of his most important work was about racism, about being a white gay man, and what that meant to the way that he understood the world. Part of what he did in his histories over and over again was reclaim working-class gay lives that had not been... Um, seen and articulated with such complexity and depth. The work that he was um, doing at the time of his death was on the Maritime Union um, in the 30s in San Francisco, which had, was I think they called it red, black, and purple, that had a lot of people of color, a lot of working class, men and a lot of gay people. Lot right, of it, was the, it was the Marine Cooks and Stewards Union. So in general, the cooks were African-American and the stewards were gay men. These were men who worked on passenger liners. That's right. And it was the most left of the waterfront unions in San Francisco. That's right. Do you know what's happening to the manuscript? Of his I don't think any decisions have yet been made um, about any of the of his work that has you know that is unpublished or unfinished, I know that there's a core of people that were close friends of his that um, are designated and will be looking at that. But but it's so soon sure. and so yeah. surprising. His death is so surprising that nothing's been done yet. Yeah, I, he died of stomach ulcers, I, I believe, and um, that's really shocking uh, because I. I would have thought that uh, medical science would have advanced to a stage where that would be treatable. Well, I think traditionally it is, but unfortunately um, it appears that he had had stomach ulcers that were undiagnosed Uh um, longer than anyone knew. 
so that when the, the current um, crisis happened, it was on top of a condition that was undiagnosed. And because of that, um, it weakened his organs and he was more vulnerable. And though it appeared that he was going to rally, it finally didn't succeed. Traditionally, stomach ulcers, if they're diagnosed, can be treated. But if they're undiagnosed, um, it's very problematic. For sure. It's very painful. And so certainly his, yes. his death came as, as an enormous shock to, to the many people who loved him, who admired his work, who had followed his example. I was one of the people who was a young graduate student. He really mentored. Alan was 10 years older than me, and, and he helped uh, light and guide my interest in queer history when I was, was in my early 20s. And Alan was only 61 years old. Those of us who survived the most horrible moments of the storm of the AIDS crisis uh, have reached a point now where we're no longer We've kind of gone back to not being prepared for people who are not <laughs> 75, 85 years old to die suddenly, uh, and it is both painful and, and, and shocking to have Alan's death happen. It also, I think, for many of us, raises, uh, brings back some issues of unmourned losses that we've experienced through the AIDS crisis and reminds us of, of that terrible moment, uh, Alan's, and and again, of Alan's enormous contribution to our help, helping get us through that terrible moment. We were counting on having him around for another 20 years to, to help us and our community further. He moved... Uh, think he, about yeah. it, Gerard, I was thinking about this, the, that we've lost two of our most important, radical, progressive, gay male thinkers. We lost Eric Rofus a year ago, and we yes. just lost Alan both of whom were fundamental in, in a progressive, gay kind of understanding of the world that they continually move forward. And both were Leathermen and both were very passionate leaders around a progressive sexual politics. The loss of, and both of them are survivors of the epidemic. In a way, for me, it's particularly bitter because the loss of so many gay men in the epidemic was so horrifying. So those men that survived it were even more precious because they were the few remaining men from a period when so many had not survived. I didn't expect to lose either one of them so quickly. Yes. How, how was Alan as a person? Um, I mean, he seemed always to be very friendly and very uh, forthcoming to help people. Uh, he wasn't uh, standoffish. Uh, he wasn't. He wouldn't put you off. It seemed. Never. He, you know, Alan was one of the kindest men I've ever met. He was generous to a fault. He he cared and listened. I mean, he really, he never, it was interesting. He was not a person who would take a backstage, but he was not a person who had to be front and center every minute. He was always willing to support people, mentor them, talk with you, whether or not you were famous or not. It didn't matter to him. He was interested in other human beings, and he was kind. 
It was genuinely kind. I, I always was, was struck by Alan's deep compassion. Yes. Uh, Amber mentioning his listening to people, that's certainly something that I remember that Alan had a very serious and focused way of listening to people. Uh, when you talked with him, you definitely felt that he was hearing and thinking about every word you were saying. Uh, he was very supportive, but he was also quite prepared in a rather uh, quiet and unconfrontational way to, <laughs> to call people yeah. on statements or actions that he felt were inappropriate, were oppressive, were uh, reflective of harmful attitudes, uh, and did it in a way that I thought was very uh, very kind. I remember yeah. several times when I was a young man that Alan called me on things that I said uh, and brought me up short and forced me to think about them, uh, but he did it in a way that it was very possible to hear his critique and not feel personally attacked, but feel helped to think more clearly uh, and to bring uh, a better political and human analysis to things. Uh, so he was not was, a he was, was not uh, simply a pushover, but he That's also right. was <laughs> not a not a you know not a hard guy at all. No, you know if you th like I remember when coming out under fire had come out, he was kind of he was his the visibility of Alan was suddenly very high. He was being invited to be on a million panels. <laughs> and he came back and, and we had a long conversation because he was becoming more and more disturbed that all the panels that he was on about gay history were white. And he just thought that was unconscionable. And he then made a decision that he would no longer accept being on a panel that wasn't diverse in terms of race and class and gender and that he would make that uh, part of the criteria for acceptance. And if a panel, if he was invited to be on a panel and it was all gay white people, he wasn't going to do it. And he was at that point being invited to Harvard, to Yale, to Princeton, <laughs> to, to institutions, elite institutions. And he said, I just can't do this. I cannot have what I believe so strongly in around gay history and its diversity be represented by, by white people in the gay movement. I can't do this. So he was, he, he, you know, he put his own, he made it essential that his, his own belief system of, of progressive politics and representations that were not narrow either of men or white people, um, he put rubber, you know, he put the rubber to the road. He said, I won't participate. You can't invite me under those terms. And that was very much, I think, an example of Alan taking risks when he had no good financing. I mean, those speaking engagement invitations often were how he paid his rent, and yet he was not prepared to participate in a way that he thought was um, against what he believed. And so he was like that in the public world, and he was generous in that way in the private world. He really, he was a friend. I remember, and I'm sure you remember this, Gerard, you'd often be having breakfast with him or, or a meal with him, and he'd have this little tiny notebook 
that he would be making notes in when you would be talking to him about <laughs> things that interested him or things he wanted to go look up. <laughs> Absolutely. <or laughs> reminders of interesting <clears throat> ideas. I was just remembering him. You know, he always had this little notebook that he would pull out and make notes while you were talking. <laughs> he really listened. He always tried to. Uh, I know he tried very hard to dig out the history of people of color in the military. And I uh, once asked him if he found any gay people in the internment camps, uh, the Japanese-American internment camps. And that was his regret that he didn't, uh, wasn't able to find uh, much about that. But I, I think he did try to dig out a lot of stuff that would otherwise uh, be ignored by other researchers. Exactly. You know, that he, he looked for and loved the history of drag. Of, you know, uh, so he wasn't looking for, you know, the representations of LGBT people um, to make people who aren't LGBT or even are LGBT comfortable. He loved the wildness of gay life. He loved that we were different. He loved all of us being proud of the way, of the things that made us unique because we were LGBT people, because we were people of color, because we were women. Those things mattered. And because we often are working class or poor. And he wasn't going to not just hide that history, he wanted to highlight that history because he thought it was so valuable and because it's where he came from. He, he, he also thought it was fun. I always remember the gleam in his eyes when he talked. He was passionate about what he did, and he uh, shared it with everybody. Absolutely. One of, one of the great things about Alan's work was precisely uh, his enormous excitement and enormous love and enormous passion for the historical discoveries he was making and for the historical understanding he was coming to. And he conveyed that in his writing and in his public speaking. And when you simply bumped into him on the sidewalk, uh, he would be overflowing with that, that enormous excitement of this work. And I think that engaged people in his work. It brought them in in a very, in a very interesting way. I'd also like to add that, that Amber talked about his his commitment to uncovering the lost histories of the full diversity of LGBT people. And that absolutely is one of the things that was both incredibly important about Alan's work, but also representative of the work that could be done by community-based scholars who, although they didn't have a budget and had to take three jobs to make ends meet, could keep digging and keep looking and keep working at it until they found those missing pieces. And often the shred of paper or the oral history that allows you to tell the story of a group of African-American men in World War II is not something you would find on the timeline that a Ph.D. advisor sets for you. <laughs> uh, that, no, that non-academic work in history allows us to reach the the lost parts of our diversity and to find the missing pieces, uh, even if it takes a lifetime. And Alan, of course, worked on his World War II uh, work for about 10 years, 
Uh, and I don't think any PhD advisor would let, you, would let you do that. I remember he came to in the historical society, you know, the, the history project where he'd found the box, where he'd been given the box of the letters. And he was just beside himself. He just kept saying, you can't believe what somebody found in the garbage. I, this is just unbelievable. I can't, and he would read us little pieces of things. He was just thrilled that he had found this. And it, there's another story that I want to tell because I think it so captures him. When he did the, the History of Passing Women, he did that slideshow at what was then the Women's Building um, in San Francisco. It was very new. It had a huge auditorium. The auditorium was packed with people. It was unbelievable. There were hundreds and hundreds of of. LGBT people there, including a huge number of passing women who sat in that audience crying because they had never seen themselves represented as part of the community. The history of women passing as men, living as men, had never been represented as a proud and powerful component of gay history. And suddenly it was there and it was visible. And I thought, you know, this is so like Alan to have understood that this was not a history of, of uh, strangeness. This was a history of our community that was the underpinning for all the, the work that would happen in the future and all the ways that we're queer. And people stood and gave him a standing ovation at the end of that show because everyone was so profoundly moved at that kind of gay history. Thank you very much. Uh, we're coming to the end of our hour, actually, <laughs> and uh, we've been uh, remembering uh, Alan Berube, a community-based historian and digger of the past, uh, uncovering the past. We've been talking with Amber Holiba and Gerard Koskovich, um, talking about this remarkable man who gave us so much. This is Dan Sun. Thank you very much, Gerard and Amber, uh, signing off for Subversity. And we'll end with a clip that, uh, a sound recording that I think um, Alan would like, uh, Glad to be Gay by Tom Robinson. Thank you, Dan. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. Thank you.